Thank you, Todd. Good morning. I am so excited to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, thank you for being here, and thank you, those of you who are joining us online, for being here with us. Today we are beginning a short two-week series in 2nd and 3rd John. This morning we'll look at 2nd John, and next Sunday we'll look at 3rd John. The, the first, second, and third letters of John are all very closely related to each other. They were written by the same author, the Apostle John, and they're about the same time and to the same situation. I, I think of them like this. First John seems to be directed at a group of local churches. Second John seems to be addressing a single local congregation. And third John addresses an individual member of a local church. Most scholars date these three letters of John to about 90 to 95 AD, a time in which we know that false teachings, contrary to the true gospel, were spreading throughout Asia, what we now call Turkey. This is the same region that John the Apostle lived in and exercised considerable influence and authority over. The main idea that John expresses in 2 John is that those who are in Christ walk in truth. As we'll see, this means that the church lives out and protects the truth of Christ in love and regards those who promote a different gospel as outside the body of Christ. So what does it mean to walk in truth? What does that look like? What does it look like when someone is not walking in truth? And what does it look like when someone is leading others away from the truth? These are issues that are addressed in this letter. As we begin to think through the idea of walking in truth, we must start by asking the question, what is truth? We live in a culture that does not seem to have a simple answer to that question. Many today think of living out their truth as opposed to someone else's truth. Many today think of truth as something to be found within themselves. There is a sense in which we all live out our own truth because we live, the way we live is an expression of what we believe is true. But does it follow that just because I believe something is true, that it is true? Is there an objective truth? that is meant to define our lives? Absolutely. Well, Scripture tells us that the answer to that question is yes. There is a singular truth that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. So Christians are described as walking in the truth. Well, what does it look like to walk in that particular truth? Uh, let's read 2 John together. If you're using one of the blue Bibles from the back of the auditorium, you'll find that on page 593 and only on page 593. And for the rest of you, you'll find 2 John conveniently located between 1 John and 3 John. That should be helpful. So uh, before we read, let's pray together. Father, as we read your word today, help us to remember that we are not reading only John's words to people who lived 2,000 years ago, 
but your word to us today. Father, we know that we can only grasp and truly incorporate your truth as you reveal it to us. So we ask this morning, as we read your word, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your truth for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's read 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into this world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teachings has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. <clears throat> now, two questions probably come to mind as you read this that we'll quickly address before we move on to the content of John's letter. First, why does John call himself the elder rather than simply using his name? It's most likely that John, as the last remaining apostle, was such an important and well-known figure in the church that he needed no other introduction. At this point in his history, John, the apostle, is by far the most likely person in the church to have been known by the title, the elder. The second question you may have is, who are the elect lady and her children? Well, the elect lady probably refers to a local church, a congregation of the elect, those who are chosen those who are in Christ. And the phrase, her children, probably refers to the members of that church. And so the children of your elect sister that we see in verse 13 would be the members of the church where John is writing from, most likely the church at Ephesus. So returning now to the content of John's letter, what does he say about how we should conduct ourselves in a church? How should the truth of Christ be lived out. Well, first he says that love 
will be evident in those who walk in truth. In verses 1 and 2, John says to this church that he, John, and all who know the truth love them in truth. Why does he say that? Because, he says, of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So a Christian, one who's walking in truth, is one in which the truth abides. And the result of that truth abiding in us is that we love those who also walk in the truth. It's true that Christians are called to love our neighbors and love our enemies, but we are bound in love to each other because of the truth we walk in together. We love each other in this church not because we're all compatible, we have the same background or the same ethnicity or the same interests or political views or personalities. We love each other because we all walk in the same truth. John also tells us that those who walk in the truth will be marked by grace, mercy, and peace. So love, grace, mercy, and peace. Those don't come very naturally to me or to you probably because we are marred by sin. But for those of us who are in Christ, who are abiding in Christ, those who have set their hope in Him and are walking in His truth, we are being transformed into the image of Christ by His Holy Spirit. And so as we walk in truth, we will increasingly see these traits in one another. Love, grace, mercy, and peace. John rejoiced that some of the members of this church were walking in truth. Part of what it means to be in fellowship with other believers in a local church is that we can be filled with joy as we see others walk in the truth. As I see you walk in truth and you see me walk in truth, we rejoice that by the power of the Holy Spirit, truth is abiding in us and transforming us. <clears throat> so what is the truth that abides in us? In verse 4, John writes that the truth we walk in is that which was commanded by the Father. What was commanded by the Father? Look at, again with me at verses 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now, you might think at first that John is talking in circles here in these two verses. But as we look carefully, we'll notice that he's describing the bond, love that word, between love and obedience and faith, that the two are connected. The command from the Father is the one we have from the beginning. It's not anything new. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus told his chosen witnesses, the apostles, including John, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we see here in this letter, many decades later, John is doing just that, teaching us to walk in his commands. Walking in the truth means 
walking in the gospel revealed in and through Jesus to the apostles in the beginning. That's the truth we're talking about. So obedience to the commands of Christ, obedience to the commands of Christ is connected to loving Christ and loving one another. In John's own gospel, he records Jesus as saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I found a quote from theologian John Stott that I think clarifies this point. He says, Scripture commands us both to love each other in truth and hold the truth in love. These two are inseparable. If I attempt to love in my own strength without abiding in the truth, I will eventually fail. And if I attempt to obey all the commands of Christ in my own strength without loving my brothers and sisters, my lack of love will reveal that I'm not really abiding in the truth. For those of us who are in Christ, who are following Him, walking in truth means knowing, not just knowing the truth, but internalizing it in such a way that the Holy Spirit can use it to transform us from the inside out, enabling us to live out the truth. And the primary expression of that abiding in truth will be love. Unfortunately, not all who hear and know the truth abide in the truth. Some forsake the truth and even attempt to lead others away from the truth. John addresses these in verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. John doesn't specifically identify these false teachers or all of what they were preaching. He refers to them as deceivers and antichrists. The term antichrist means simply against Christ or opposed to Christ. So he is identifying that what they teach is opposed to the gospel of Jesus. There were several variations of false teaching or heresy which were prevalent in the church at this time in history which could fit the heresy that John is describing here. What John does reveal about their teaching in verse 7 is what's most important. And that is, they did not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. It may be that John is thinking of those who taught that Jesus didn't have a real body during his life on earth and that only, he had only the appearance of one. Or he may have in mind those who taught that the Spirit of Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him before his death on the cross. The contradictions to the truth of the gospel in these false teachings are not minor differences of opinion that can be overlooked. Because if Jesus Christ was not fully God and fully man, as taught by the apostles, then he didn't really live a sinless life and take our sin upon himself on the cross and die for, for them. And if he didn't die, then he didn't, wasn't resurrected and the whole gospel comes apart. 
So these false teachings were not variations of the gospel. They were anti-gospel. That's what it means to be anti-Christian or anti-Christ, is to be anti-gospel. It might seem to you that these false teachings that John was addressing have little to do with us today. This might be an interesting stage of church history, but how does it relate to you and me? I think we can begin to see the relevance of 2 John for us if we consider the answers to two questions. First, how could such ideas as these, which seem so completely at odds with the gospel message proclaimed by John and Paul and all the other apostles, how could such a thing have taken root in the church? And second, what measures does John prescribe for protecting ourselves against false teaching? When we consider the first question, how did it happen that this kind of false teaching found acceptance among those who profess to be Christians? When we think about that, it's helpful to look at the culture that existed at the time that this letter was written. In the last decade of the first century, so between 90 and 100, the concept found in Greek philosophy that all matter is evil and that good can only exist in the spiritual realm was commonly accepted among many people as fact. And so the idea that Jesus was fully God and fully man was objectionable to them. As people who accepted this view of reality were exposed to the gospel, some of them began to see the teachings of the apostles as old-fashioned or even naive. They decided that the apostles simply didn't understand the truth of Jesus that had been revealed to them because of their lack of knowledge about the way things are. These sophisticated, enlightened Greeks believed that the gospel had to be reinterpreted in light of what they clearly to be tr knew to be true about the world. This led them to the development of these teachings that were clearly contrary to the plain truth of the gospel. Their error is the same area that, error that every generation of Christians has faced. That is the error of allowing the culture around us to influence our interpretation of Scripture rather than allowing the truth in Scripture to influence our view of our culture. Today we live in a world full of false teachers and false gospels which have arisen and taken hold among those who have heard the truth but have not abided in it. These false teachers have reinterpreted the truth found in God's Word based on philosophies and values found in our culture. Just one of the many false gospels we face today that we might mention as an example is the so-called prosperity gospel. This false gospel, which claims to be Christian, twists the truth of Scripture to teach that God wants all people to be wealthy, successful, and never face suffering. This is a version of Christianity heavily distorted by a Western, materialistic, 
success-driven culture. It is a heresy that presents a, a God who's really quite small, a God that's only valued for, being, for the material benefits he might provide, a God who has no choice but to provide you with whatever you desire as long as you have enough faith. It is a system that glorifies man and the things of this world rather than the creator of this world. These that teach this do not abide in the teaching of Christ. And so John would say, they do not have God. How did it happen that millions of people have been led in the opposite direction away from God by such a false gospel? This is what can happen when people use their culture to interpret Scripture rather than allowing the truth in Scripture to interpret their culture. So how do we make sure that we don't wander into false teaching? Well, we see in verses 5 and 6, John says, we love one another. Verse 5. How does loving one another help us protect us from false teaching? Well, part of loving one another is encouraging one another to walk in the truth. So you encourage me to walk in the truth, and I encourage you to walk in the truth, and we stay in the truth together. It means holding each other accountable to the truth. And it means not allowing one another to stray. We also find in verse 6 that we walk according to the commandments of Christ. The best way to protect myself from heresy is to walk in the commandments of Christ. This does not mean becoming moralistic, trying in my own strength to obey all the rules, now, the key to walking in the commands of Christ or walking in truth is found in verse 9. Look there again with me. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So, there's a lot of talk about abiding. What does it mean to abide in the teaching of Christ? Well, in John 15, also written by this author, Jesus describes abiding to his disciples. Listen to this. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So the way to walk in truth is to abide in Christ, who is the truth. Loving one another and walking in the commandments of Christ flow out of abiding in Him. They don't come from our strength, but from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth 
that dwells in us. He is generating the love for one another and the ability to obey his commandments. As I abide in Jesus, that is, rest in him, live in him, pursue him, set my mind upon him, fix my affection upon him, his spirit is transforming me from the inside out into his image, enabling me to love one another and keep his commandments. So our focus, if we're trying to walk in truth, is on the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ. It's not my truth because it comes from outside of me and it's ultimate and eternal. Well, John tells us we must also protect the truth as well as walk in it. Look again at verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This directive might seem harsh to us. How could John ask his brothers and sisters in Christ to treat others this way? But the hospitality that John is describing is a sign of inclusion in the fellowship of this church. To receive a traveling preacher, even to greet that per person with a Christian greeting, was to say, you're one of us. We support your ministry, and we approve of what you teach. So the instruction not to show hospitality to those preaching false gospels is about rightly excluding them from fellowship in the body. It's meant to draw a clear line between the truth and falsehood. And it's also meant to protect those in this church who are weaker in their faith from falling prey to false teachings. It's important to note that John is not saying to cut off fellowship from those believers who are honestly in error, simply uninformed, or misled by others. No, these brothers and sisters should be discipled lovingly, patiently, humbly. Just as we see Priscilla and Aquila do for Apollos in Acts chapter 18. Now, there's also matters of disagreement inside a church fellowship that don't affect the truth of the gospel. And so they don't rise to the level of anti-gospel false teaching. We may disagree about them and still maintain fellowship in the truth. Matters such as church governance or philosophy of ministry or points of doctrine that don't affect the gospel. John is also not saying you shouldn't invite a Jehovah's Witness, a Muslim, or any unbeliever into your house to, to tell them, explain them the truth of the gospel. Or that you shouldn't invite them to come to a worship gathering here. But you wouldn't invite them into membership, fellowship in your church. John's command is directed at those who preach a different gospel. He's talking about deceivers and antichrists. Those who know the truth but have not abided in it 
and are teaching something false. He warns that these false teachers must be considered as outside the body of Christ because they have declared themselves to be so by what they teach. Christian fellowship in a local body of believers must not be extended to those who are clearly, deliberately outside of the truth of Christ. The line between that what is true in Christ and what is not must be vigilantly guarded. This is one of the specific functions of elders in any church. But it's also the responsibility of all those who are in Christ, all Christians, to guard the truth as we live it out in love. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, first of all, we're glad that you're with us. Thank you for considering what we have to say. Friend, no one can walk in truth until they come to know the truth personally. In his gospel, John tells us that Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is an absolute truth around which your life is meant to be centered, and it can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. If you will put your trust in him alone as Lord and believe that he died on a cross to rescue you from your sin and that he rose from the dead to give you eternal life in him, he will fill you with his Holy Spirit and he will equip you to walk in the truth. If you have any questions about that or would like to talk to someone about what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you after our gathering, as would most of the people in this room. There will never be a better day to begin walking in the truth than today. For those of us who are already believers, are already in Christ, there are some clear applications in John, 2 John. We must live out and protect the truth we say we believe. Walking in truth means loving our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, in a specific local church, an elect lady and her children. You cannot love those in the body unless you are committed to fellowship in a local body of believers. Walking in truth means holding to the truth we have heard from the beginning. That is the commandments of Christ taught by the apostles. Walking in truth means viewing our culture through the lens of Scripture and not the other way around. We must love one another in truth and hold the truth in love. And finally, Church on Mill, we must protect the truth of Christ against deceivers and antichrists. Each of us should know what the fundamental non-negotiables of the gospel are so that when we see false teaching, we'll know it for what it is. In this brief little letter from John, we have a timely reminder of the proper relationship we should have to the truth of Christ. The church lives out and protects the truth of Christ in love and regards those who promote a different gospel as outside the body of Christ.
the way that you can, and I can do this is to look, to look to Jesus as the embodiment of all truth. Abiding in him so that we can walk in truth as individuals and as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John and the way you spoke through him and continue to speak through him today. We pray, Lord, that as believers, you would show us how to walk in your truth, how to abide in Christ, how to love one another, and how to keep the commandments of Christ. Father, if there are any here today who don't know you, I pray, Lord, that through your word, the truth of Jesus and who he is and their need for him will be clear. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.